Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders from the NHS to talk about topics which matter to them, as well as challenges that they are facing today. I'm Louis and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Fran, Diana, Lee and Arpit to discuss digital transformation within the NHS. To clarify, their views expressed by the guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official positions or the policy of their organizations. So before we delve deeper into today's topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Uh, Lee, do you want to kick us off? Certainly. Thanks, Louis. Uh, so Lee Gutcher, Program Manager for North Central London ICB, Integrated Care Board. Um, I've worked for the NHS for about 15 years, mainly in operational management in acute hospital settings. But my current role is working as a Program Manager in the North Central London ICS. Um, my role focuses on collaborative programs which span across multiple trusts in my ICS and we're using digital initiatives uh, to bring trusts closer together to work more collaboratively with one another, uh, ultimately to improve patient care, improve efficiency, resource and reduce costs. Great, thanks Lee. Uh, and Fran, do you want to introduce yourself? Yep, thanks Louis. I'm Fran Freywood, Senior Project Manager at Black Country ICB. Currently working on the Digital Clouds Primary Care Program work, which has been mandated by NHS England. Um, I've been working on primary care digital transformation projects for about 20 years now. Started off in primary care and then moving into a private IT healthcare company, and then finally the last um, six years into the NHS. Great, thanks, Fran. And Arbit? Oh, hi, thanks, Louis. Um, I'm Arbit. I am a GP at Abbey Meads Medical Centre in Swindon. I'm also the clinical director for Brunel 5 Primary Care Network. Um, I also do some work with the I, with Bath, Swindon and Wiltshire ICB, working as a primary care digital lead, trying to promote the way we use our integrated care records. Um, I also sit on the technology appraisals committee with NICE, and it's really interesting to see some of the different streams of work that NICE are looking at in terms of appraising digital health tech. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and last but not least, uh, Diana. Good afternoon. I'm Diana Niscuzzi and I'm Transformation Manager for Children and People Mental Health and Transforming Care in Dar Hamlet's uh, place-based team. So my remit is delivering the long-term plan priorities for children and people mental health and some elements of the learning disabilities and autism. And I've been working also in and with the NHS over the last maybe 12 years in many different roles. Some of them have included um, deploying technologies um, to support, again, children and people mental health, like when the TYPI program started about 10 years ago, um, strategy and policies in national teams. So I've got a varied background, but over the last five years, I've been focusing on commissioning and transformation around mental health um, and well-being and learning disabilities for the not to 25. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. Um, so now that we've got some context for each of you, we'll move into today's topic, uh, which is digital transformation in the NHS. So you've all came up with a question slash statement on digital transformation. Um, as usual, I'll work my way around the room um, and give me some reasons behind where your question has came from, uh, and then we'll open it up for a discussion to the panel. So we'll start off with Fran. Uh, your question was, how can we as digital leaders bring GP surgeries to the same slash similar digital standards? Can you tell me where that question came from? Yeah, so working primary care for this many years, I'm doing project delivery. Um, certainly what's been apparent over my time is that digital transformation has really accelerated uh, over the last few years and, and it's still evolving at um, an accelerated rate. 
But one of the challenges I'm finding that is it's really difficult bringing GP practices up to the same standards. Um, we have the fast followers, we have the early doctors, they're always keen to get on board with all our digital transformation programs work. But we have the sort of laggards that seem to just lag behind. And these are the ones that we feel like we're kicking and screaming that um, we really failed to kind of change their mindset to adopting change. So one of the, vi- the vision statement we've set out for our program work is about bringing um, all primary care up to the same or similar standards with the digital first work. Um, so I'm just really sort of putting that out to the group. We need to get some kind of feedback and thoughts, what how they think we can kind of challenge this particular area, which has been going on for a number of years now. Yeah, I think that, that's a fascinating question. And it's, um, it's interesting because it's one of the benefits of primary care, but also one of the sort of Achilles tendons of primary care in terms of because surgeries are so in control of what they do, and it means that they're able to respond very quickly and it makes primary care actually very responsive when change is needed to be quick and essential. But it also means that you don't have total control over what each surgery does and you can't create uniformity, which is actually really challenging. Um, I I think some of the things that I, I've seen across the past few years, which have made it easier is people working as primary care networks, people... I think before people were much more siloed and seeing that good practice was much harder. Um, now that you're sort of for, we're, we're working as groups of three or four surgery and we're working much more closely with our neighbouring surgeries, it means that we're much more quick to see the good practice that other surgeries are doing when they're using things like digital technology and it encourages other surgeries to uh, adopt that much quicker so I think that collaboration in your local area is going to be really important and I think um, the other thing that I think is really good which has come down from a national le- level is having digital leads in within primary care networks so that's now part of the workforce structure I think that's really important because if if we think clinically traditionally the way you've brought about clinical change is by having champions so for example when there was a push on improving cancer care, improving pain management. Uh, one strategy was to have pain champions or cancer champions within the surgeries and and uh, they would sort of attend meetings, learn good new practice and share that within the surgeries. And I think that's exactly the same strategy that is good to see that's what we're doing with these primary care networks is having digital champions within each PCN so that from an ICB level, hopefully you've got that point of contact that you can share that good practice. So, um, as I mentioned, my role is mainly uh, in secondary care, but I think there's a good point that was raised there about not working in silos. And I guess the ICBs um, have, have been formed to kind of create that collaboration between primary care and secondary care and uh, short social care, etc. And obviously all, do, all the different organisations within the ICS. Um, but I guess it's, for, for me, any kind of, program or project or initiative or digital transformation initiative which has been formed from a secondary care point of view i think it's really important to have that communication with primary care and with gps and you know uh, giving them or giving gps like uh, like a seat at the table uh, when when we're designing it in the first place or and you know even if even if it's not a seat at the table to help us design it together at least have some kind of communication line so you can communicate with what we're actually working on um and they 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 can see what's coming down the line and it's just i think that that's really important and a couple of examples of that from the north central london um pro- programs that i've been working on is we 
uh, create in the pro well we're in the process of creating a single occupational health service service for all ten um, secondary care trusts um, in in North Central London. But we have a vision to expand to GPs at some point. So yes, it might be 12, 18 months, 24 months down the line, but the very fact that we're opening that dialogue now and having that conversation, GP surgeries know, or primary care know that this is coming. So rather than them going off to do their own thing, they can obviously work with us on that. And I think that's really important. Uh, and another um, example as well is on our North Central London Collaborative Bank as well. So in the first instance, yes, it's just going to be with um, nurses and doctors who are working in those secondary care trusts. Um, but eventually, you know, we want to expand it um, so, so, so it can also touch primary care. And we've all, by having that engagement and that open dialogue with with primary care, we've actually got Camden Health, who are now working with UCLH, who are one of our partners in our um, in our sector, to for them to start sharing their uh, clinical staff as well. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, in summary, I think it's all about communication and having that dialogue. Yeah, that's uh, been some really um, interesting points raised then. Um, yeah, certainly, the key is cut collaboration and communication with our GP surgeries and get the, the leaders really of those PCNs and the, particularly the digital transformation leads and the digital, digital champions to also drive those discussions as well. Yeah, really useful. Thank you. So Lee, you've came up with how can we ensure that digital transformation in the NHS prioritises addressing digital poverty and considers the needs and challenges of underserved populations whilst also encouraging and supporting startups and health tech entrepreneurs in their efforts. So do you want to explain to the group uh, where that question came from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's quite a wordy question, right? I just uh, just realised that as you were saying it. Um, a bit of a yeah, so <laughs> so th- uh, this came from um, a conference that I attended a couple of months ago, actually. It was the Digital Health, Digital Health Show at the Excel in London. Uh, and there was a couple of uh, talks uh, around this subject and I just I just found it really fascinating and um, it really struck a chord with me as well um, about the importance of doing this and I guess you know I think it's important to highlight the importance um, highlight the importance of recognizing that there is disparities in access to uh, tech and devices also internet connectivity and that can hinder access to some of these digital um, healthcare um, solutions and you know, this this is usually in well, this could be in um, you know, underserved populations such as low income communities, you know, the homeless community, um, uh, patients with mental health issues, immigrants and refugees with la- language barriers, etc. And I think it's just really important that it's probably some of these um, communities or some of these patient cohorts who probably need these digital solutions the most. And I guess where the conversation came from or, or, or part of the conversation I was listening to was that we just need to be mindful of this and not um, have digital health being the next inequality basically and um, I think the bit where it came where, where it links into different startups and health tech entrepreneurs as well is when they are designing a product or a, a solution and they're going to test it um, then it's it's sometimes quite tempting and easy to go with the low hanging fruit those patient cohorts who um, are easy to access um, but perhaps maybe some of these underserved populations which are perceived to be harder to access communities um, it's it, it, it's probably would be worthwhile to test the product on those uh, populations 
um, and then obviously scale up from there. So yeah, it'd be good to get people's uh, thoughts on that um, and just open the conversation up on, on that topic. Yeah, that's a very good question. Very le- relevant is the other question that I posed uh, around um, harnessing you know, the access to digital support for children and young people. And I think um, inequalities, not only from an access perspective in terms of having a diverse provision across the patch, but the digital exclusion is, is a theme that came up strongly in our um, local engagement, particularly in areas like North East London that has a very diverse population. We've been you know, very deprived areas um, uh, opposing to very rich areas. And um, uh, and the, the actual ability to, um, as a young person in particular, but also the family to have access to basics, to other things that for us now consider us basically like Wi-Fi or having a, an iPad or a mobile phone, and as well as um, like um, privacy and access to space to be using the health app and you know engaging with the health technologies, whether there is uh, it's app based or, or or whether there is an actual person behind that service. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think it's interesting is a is a common thread the digital exclusion. And um, I've recently listened to another conversation talking about um, you know corporate responsibility. Uh, so you mentioned something around companies and low hanging fruit and how you know we can work with companies to help us. I suppose one of the solutions how we can help them help us uh, and uh, and direct some of their investments and funding and growth strategy in bridging this gap. Um, one thing that is happening now in in, the, in our hamlets. Um, I, I, I became aware that it's actually the only borough in Northeast London with a um, strategy dedicated to digital exclusion with funding attached to it. Um, so thinking about creating ways to direct, you know, funding or in a, having access to pieces of technologies for people who need it the most. But I think, yeah, is that it's having that unified um, plan um, where uh, you have healthcare organization, you also have public health, you have social care, but you also have industry to acknowledge that their products comes with an enabler which is the technology itself yeah absolutely and i think i think the point that i was making in regards to um you know testing the product on those and i say in inverted commas hard to reach areas sometimes i think it might not be hard to reach is it that we're actually trying hard enough to reach them um because i guess once we when we're creating products we think we know what some of these populations or some of these cohorts uh, need but there was actually a talk which was um discussing about the the, the fact that they had to kind of engage with this um with, with a, a diverse uh, group of um stakeholders and communities and underserved population now, actually some of the things that was teased out of that conversation was you know things that they never thought about and i just think if you've created and tested your product on a cohort of patients who don't have these unique or tailored needs then you're going to scale up and then it's going to not going to be relative relevant or optimal for uh, the underserved population so i think that's the importance just right from the start to include them in and invest that time to um you know reach out to those um as i say inverted commas hard to reach um populations um, Arthur, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, uh, I think it's an incredibly relevant point. And um, I think the the point that Ali said about sort of how the thinking of some tech companies might be a bit different, which is completely understandable, is, is very interesting because I think 
anyone who works, any clinician or anyone who works in healthcare, I think one of the first things we always think about is safety and those who are the most vulnerable. Uh, it's just the way we've been trained right from day one, right from day one, we do safeguarding training. We're always taught, you know, you do a lot, a lot of our processes and safety processes are about the, the most vulnerable and, uh, patients that we've got. And, and you can completely understand why if you're coming from a tech uh, company, unless that's your focus to focus on a vulnerable patient, it might not be their priority. One of the, there's, there's a doctor called Dr. Derek Paul. I, I don't know if many of you have come across him, but he set up a, a group called Adopt a Doc with the whole priority being to connect clinicians as early as possible to some of these health tech companies and get them thinking about, from a clinician's point of view, uh, about these sort of things like risk, about things like vulnerable patient groups. And, and actually in this group, the, the people, digital poverty, as, as they say, is, is such an important fact. I mean, things that are very simple to us. So I have had plenty of patients in the past few months who have said to me, I've sent them a text and said, can you reply to me, uh, my text just with a photo? And they've said to me that they can't because they don't have any credit on their phone. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very real problem with, uh, you know, the cost of living crisis and things like that at the moment. And actually, you know, I think there are some government schemes that are good coming out to make broadband more accessible to uh, at a low, lower income. But um, just simply education and, and being aware how to use some of these tools is is in itself quite tricky i think we've probably all sat on uh with our parents trying to teach them how to use a, an iphone or an ipad so trying to get that education is going to be really important and i think um the pcns are now we've got we're lucky to have social prescribers uh and and using more social prescriber resource council resource to uh set up courses in in libraries and local community halls to just get out there into the community to be start educating some of these uh, people about how to use the uh, how to use tech. I think that's going to be really important. Yeah, just you touched on like the different schemes. There are lots of schemes out there if you sort of Google support government and also through large scale companies. But how easy to get those resources? We're not quite sure. So what we've done in the Black countries actually um, a program, digital inequalities program, where we loan out GI books to patients in that population. Um, and they come along to a hub working day where they can collect the device and there's a bit of a hands-on kind of training on how to use device and access certain apps such as the NHS app. But we also kind of signpost them to any um, training so if they need to upskill themselves, then there's lots of also resources you've got to support them in that area. I mean, digital poverty comes up in every single digital power work that uh, we work on. Now, how are we how are we going to reduce digital inequalities? Because the last thing I want to do is increasing inequalities. So we we now do these um, heat assessments where we look at the population and look at how we are going to reduce um, health digital inequalities through the program work and projects that we are delivering. So it, it is high on the agenda at the moment. It's the last thing I want to do is obviously increase. Um, but, uh, but certainly, there just seems to be able to, as I say, a lot of support out there. Yeah, um, I'll just say, I think... We, we could use our patient participation groups as well to engage with the patient uh, and understand what it is that they want as well. Because that point Fred just said about how do we 
make people aware of the services that are available, all the different support offerings. Because what I often find is when we think about how to promote this, my first answer is, oh, let's send a bulk text. <laughs> and let's and actually a lot of the solutions are inherently the problem as well. That actually our easiest ways of communicating with patients are things like text message, email, um, and and so actually we we do need to use those patient those PPGs to uh, ask patients what is the best way to communicate. Is it the posters in reception? Is it the posters in local community halls? Is it going to local re- religious centres, community centres, um, you know, fates, things like that? How do we how do we communicate them with them effectively? There's, there's a lot of criticism about PPGs that they're really not the right patient population group to be targeting they always seem to have that kind of stereotype that certain age group and that certain kind of lack of kind of digital <laughs> skills and so on but um, absolutely <laughs> so one of the things we're trying to do is um is what well, we have actually across the uh, back country set up um days where we can actually go and talk to members of the, the public on, on their concerns issues and obviously it, does, it is just health. It could be a wide range of topics. So that's our way of kind of getting out there and talking to the, the citizens across that country. Great. I hope that discussion's helped to answer that question, Lee. Absolutely. Thank you all. Cheers. Great. And I think that leads us very nicely sticking into the theme of inclusion um, is with Diana's question. Um, so Diana's question was, how can we harness the potential of digital interventions to increase access to children and young people and mental health services. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about the background of that question, Diana? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, it came from the, some of the themes already emerged through the discussion in terms of the pandemic and the um, aftermath and the uh, quick shift to working digitally and the pros and cons coming from it in terms of accelerating digitization and, and you know, you know, diversifying the ways mental health services are um, provided now. Uh, but equally increasing um, uh, need for mental health support and increasing complexity and um, uh, highlighting the inequalities, highlighting the digital poverty, highlighting how these uh, differences are really impacting on, on the access to mental health services. So um, my colleagues in NEL, uh, in the NEL team have done a fantastic piece of work a um, few months ago uh, of like let's say research and needs assessment um, and it was led by uh, a group of young people and investigated uh, local provisions but also challenges in uh, um, in accessing men- uh, digital support and and some of the findings were very interesting because w- one of the things for example that um, it's a re- point of reflection is that most, um, most of the young people interviewed either didn't feel like um, digital first was that would have been the first choice initially. So they, they they value very much the in-person connection. They value very much the type of relationship, um, and then other points uh, of um, that require you know, further action investigation is um, the uh, empowerment. So it's access to services. This is a striking the balance between being empowered and, and reaching out to services and having the means to do so from a technical perspective, from having the eyes on from having the privacy. Um, but and the consent age, so uh, this links also to some of the the issues that are um, raised in terms of 
uh, safeguarding and, and consent. And um, some of my colleagues in primary care are also saying, you know, I hear from young people who want to reach to us in primary care, but um, they can't do so because they need to talk to their parents first. So um, I think the, the children and young people in, in particular as a cohort is particularly um, more complex and perhaps disadvantaged from this, this digital um, uh, expansion and explosion that is happening in the system. Um, I'm, I am very uh, passionate about digital intervention as a preventative uh, and also, uh, I suppose, palliative, not palliative is the right word, but preventative and something else that you can use alongside existing uh, more uh, intensive support. Um, and uh, ideally, what I would like to, to see in the future, what we've been trying to work to with, with colleagues is having a, a true uh, and clear, you know, blended pathway. Um, but to do so, it's we need to adopt as a, a system the you know user centered design that is is, is uh, in my opinion is more than uh, co production. It's something like it's like a framework that you can adopt from digital product development, designing that through user centered design and taking into consideration all of the determinants of health and how they play a role into um, creating pathway that includes physical services, digital services, and kind of address some of those barriers like inequalities and uh, consent and gilly competencies. Um, yeah, so that's an overview of where we are at. I have a word to any kind of projects or programs related to kind of digital around the um, mental health services for children or people. I do think there is a massive gap there and there isn't enough support, definitely, even just from my own experience as well. Um, and if you look online on social on on the World Wide Web, it's just a, a mass information, and I can understand anybody of that kind of age would feel lost on um, where to go, who to talk to. Um, I think there's certainly more that could be done across sort of primary care, particularly now they've got the R's roles in place to to kind of focus on this age group. Um, I just kind of remember from my own study that he was at that sort of age group, 16, 17, where he needed support. And I was told, I think it could have been the surgery or whoever at the time, oh, he's too young for children's services or mental health services. And he's too old, sorry, he's too, he's too young for adult mental health services and too old for children. Like, but, but this is the age where they need that support and there was nothing. I mean, that was like 10 years ago. So I'd hope that there was a bit of improvement now, but... Yeah, def definitely one where there's certainly a need, a great need for improvements. Um, I've, I've heard of certain apps like Silver Cloud that, that recently come out. That's probably an app that specifically for mental health services, but I've had no experience of, of whether that app has been successful and what benefits it's it's um, achieved in the areas where it has been adopted. But um, yeah, I'm all for support with improving on that particular area. Yeah, thank you, um, Fran. Um... Yeah, I guess. So I, I worked as an operational lead uh, in children's services at the Whittington Hospital um, a couple of years ago now, actually. And I guess the first thing or one of the things that comes to mind about uh, how do we increase access is perhaps maybe we need to do some more collaboration with schools and colleges and education institutions about and integrating uh, the digital interventions into their mental health um, support systems as well. And that might mean that we have to uh, um, provide training to teachers and school counsellors uh, on how to use the digital tools but I think that is one way of, of, of getting in and I'm, I'm not sure how consistent we are with that or how well we do it um, but I think it's 
um, I think it is, it is a it is a potentially a quick win. It might be difficult to do, but it'd be a, I think a, it'll have had a lot um, had a lot of impact for sure. Yeah, uh, I did, I I completely agree um, with what I just said about um, the integration and almost like a sliding scale along the pathway so that the the child gets the what they need at the right time. I think it's a it's um interesting because one thing we've seen with the integrated care record so that's the care like all organizations being able to see each other's data is actually by sharing and working together you do get to get uh someone gets to the right service at the right time because they've got the right information um and and fran's point about sort of going to the gp surgery about um mental health and things like that and I, I think one of the things we've well primary care feels is that sometimes they're not the best place to be dealing with everything that comes in and actually having good direct access straight to a mental health service and things like that can actually be very effective like lee said having it through schools the correct services provided through schools as well can also be um that can also be really helpful but i think the other thing that is really interesting about digital in this space is actually having easy quick access to resources is incredibly helpful for children they don't always need to see uh sometimes they get labeled channeled into seeing a certain specialty or or down a certain pathway whereas actually what they're sometimes looking for is some support guidance something there and then something on an app that they can help coach themselves provide their own psychological training so i think apps have got a big role and actually i do remember sort of a lot of my patients liking when com got launched and the fact that they which is sort of a a website they can just go on to and chat to someone which is brilliant because they didn't necessarily want to come and talk to a gp they didn't want to necessarily tell parents everything that was going on and then go down this official nhs pathway they loved the fact that they could go online talk to someone safe talk to someone response or get some advice and guidance and and also the uh, and actually is a win-win because the parents felt that the child had something a resource they could lean on as well so i think these sorts of apps for self-help are going to be incredibly crucial for uh for children and young people and and adolescents that's a major gap that fran highlighted that sort of 16 to 18 year old is a major gap in this transition between childhood and adulthood but if there's a way of also integrating that into the nhs services so that if they use an app but then it flags they could benefit from being seen by a service and that's a bit more automated that would be brilliant that'd be really good yeah absolutely and i think all of you have touched on some of the outcomes from this report and actions so that we are taking forward at place-based team uh place-based level um one in particular is uh, i think we are on a journey in terms of um, educating professionals and parents on overall um, mental health and well-being, and mental health and well-being for for for, for children and people, and trusting that digital intervention are uh, a good uh, option for the children based on their needs. Um, we now have commissioned growth across Northeast London, and I can tell you that interestingly has a very varied uptake. Uh, for, for example, in Dial Hamlets, we've been working very hard with them to um, to do a campaign around education, including for children, because it's been underutilized. 
Um, so there is a piece of education across, you know, the adults with children as well as children and people in understanding how this um, intervention can be helpful and can be utilized alongside existing uh, services or standalone and um, give them really the, the, the you know, increased choice. Uh, with regards to primary care, yeah, with Arthros is is also a good opportunity. We we're not we don't have them yet in our hamlets for children and people. Something we're looking at to, to pilot towards the end of the year. But certainly that can be one of the resources to help and train um, and and signpost people. Um, but one very um, quick win that uh, um, we we're not the well is in our plan yet. Uh, is the, the the signposting so having one single source of truth for for all things children and people mental health um we, we yeah we get feedback from professional and families that they if they look for look for information they don't really know um what to look for what they don't know how to choose and yeah it can be as simple as having a, an up-to-date website collating all of the information based on need um and then it goes back to funding. I guess I think what one with digital one of the main challenges is that you have a strategy, you have a man, well, you have a priorities. You don't really have ring fence pots of money to that tell you use this money to achieve this goal. So it's very much left to place places and to internally how good we are, you know, in commissioning in um, making this as a priority and fighting for some money. And then usually, you know, they get dispersed in small pilots and. And then what next after you pilot? So certainly a journey, um, but it's useful to hear and compare contrast with other areas and uh, and also other age ranges. Arpit. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the other challenge for commissioning is that um, with some of these digital products, it's it can be difficult to prove or sort of objectively quantify their efficacy, which is quite challenging so uh, as a so when we've got a, a drug for example it goes through a very very set process of trials and very vigorous trials it goes through uh, phase one phase two phase three it goes through all the approval bodies mhra nice and then you know very clear very clear price this is the benefit here go and use it this is the cost this is the efficacy and i think that's where digital is maybe struggling at the moment because actually um, it's difficult to uh, quantify that. There isn't that set structure yet of, okay, it's gone through this trial and so now it's been recommended and now you can use it and in routine commissioning. So I think that's probably also what's leaving, leading to the variance in use of, of apps and things like that because actually there isn't set national guidance on actually this app has been proven to be effective this is it had a twenty percent improvement in patient symptoms, so you're okay to go and use that. And I think that's one of the challenges uh, we face. It's one we face as in clinical practice, but I imagine for you all in the commissioning roles and ICB roles, that must be a major challenge as well. Yeah, and getting the, and getting the buy-in and support from our clinical leads, because for example, sometimes we see we're not the expert, but I see something that looks. Uh, promising, exciting, but then obviously you have the the critical friend who is your clinical lead who says, "Hang on a second, show me the data." Uh, you know, have you thought about safeguarding? You talk about risk assessment. How is it going to link with crisis services? Something is, you know, it gets flagged up. So, yeah, um, it's a very niche uh, and challenging uh, core of, uh, of of population and children and people mental health and well being. But yeah, I, I guess it, it poses lots of. Um, 
uh, opportunities as well. It does. And I think the other problem with tech as well, I suppose, is it is actually quite a controversial topic in young, in in children as well, like with all the, with sort of the news about TikTok and the way it's been used uh, by young people. And I think it's quite a controversial topic in general about how children and teens are using tech. I think that's a very good point, actually. The, it's, there's almost like we're trying to encourage children to have digital well-being and not be on their phones or iPads as much as what they are, but yet we're saying here's some solutions that can help with your health. So it's, it's, it's a fine line, right? <laughs> um, and a tricky one to, to balance. Yeah, good point. Great. Uh, well, I think that was a very important discussion. It's nice to see digital linking into children and young people, I think. If you're first thing at digital and how it's affected people within health, it's more looking at patients of a of a older generation. Um, so yeah, nice to see how it links into children and young people as well. Um, so the last question today um, is Arpit's question. Um, he asked how to support primary care um, and how can it be more accessible to digital innovation. Um, so do you want to talk us through the background of that question, Arpit? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So I think. Um, so similar to Lee, actually, I was at that digital healthcare conference in Excel and left with a few questions. It sounds like we both left with more questions than answers. Um, but I suppose I left with a real feeling of everything there was very secondary care led. Everything was uh, and and general feeling that I got was that trying to innovate in primary care was seen as quite challenging and also quite a sort of a lack of understanding of how primary care works the different tiers that primary care works and and how to get into the primary care market and then I suppose it left me thinking that actually if this is the general perception amongst digital innovation it, digital innovators then actually there, there must be some element to, of truth to it <laughs> as well um, so it just really left me thinking of how do we get sort of more digital innovation in primary care? How do you get primary care to engage more with health tech companies and, and be more at the forefront of innovation? Uh, Arpit, do you find that there is resistance within primary care? Yeah. So I think, yes. I think the first thing, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's fairly obvious, but I think the first thing to do is is to identify what those barriers are. Um, and I, I don't know if you've got any feed, initial feedback from that, whether it's to do with, you know, just resistance to change. Is it cybersecurity? Is it the risk that it comes with or perceived risk? I, I don't know what what are the barriers that, that are getting um, mentioned. I mean, I think I think the big challenge is everyone seems to be drowning, just keeping in, on, on top of their day to day work. And actually, the, the headspace for innovation isn't yeah. there. Um, and I think the other slight challenge, well, no, big challenge is there is always going to be an appetite. In fact, the the beauty about partnerships is you've usually got a diverse skill mix and there probably will be one or two people in the partnership or in the practice who have got that appetite for change. Um, it's just difficult to do that when um, everything often does feel quite stacked against you. So. I'm I'm a bit of an ideas person. I like generating ideas, but I know that I'm going to encounter lots of stumbling blocks in terms of you know I na I've now learned the word DPIA, and I now know that if you drop that, you'll sound intelligent in front of tech people. So like things like DPIAs and all the um 
those sorts of things are uh are challenges for us i don't understand it and 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 on a small scale in a surgery that's difficult for me to overcome um yeah i suppose i'm not we're not enabled to innovate we don't have that platform to say i've got an idea and here's all the tools you need to transform that idea into reality because um we we might not have the facilities to do that i mean hopefully that's something that when we start working as larger primary care networks could be something that we could overcome but certainly that's a a big challenge and then i think the other problem that we encounter a lot is the clinical risk is we're always very afraid of risk um with innovation and and as actually one of the uh, our primary care network manager said to me this morning i asked him what do you think of some of the challenges we face in primary care he said we hold technology to a far 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 higher standard than any human and it it made me laugh and it made but it made me think that's really true that's really true you know with humans we we've got a phrase for it human error we accept it we make it part of the process we account for it we we have processes governance to accommodate that but for some reason clinicians and staff we when we whenever we hear a tech product we want virtually a zero percent failure rate um and are very adverse to sort of handling risk i think that i think risk is probably the other major obstructive thing well having worked on many primary care digital projects um i think we're really good at kind of getting project done as in delivered we get the software delivered or hardware and so on but i think where we lack is a whole kind of change management approach there's not enough resource and funding that goes into that change management um working closely with the practices to look at changing their processes supporting the staff with making them changes um and I think that's really where a lot of projects fail. More than we may go out and deliver it, but then they get practices have to go back to the old way because they haven't got that support. Then available projects close down, and it goes to BAU, and the service desk isn't the right people to kind of support them with that whole change management. Um, obviously, that would require a lot more funding and resources ploughed into that. Um, but yeah, one of the, one of the key ish barriers we've got at the moment with delivery is workforce and the staff issues in primary care. We're we're trying to deliver the project and we're getting our checkpoint meetings cancelled, delayed because many around the staff have staff issues are off sick and they've got the time to complete the actions. So they're getting dragged on longer and longer. It's just not that they don't want to do the project; they do, and become more innovative. It's a fact that the workforce is um, is causing them the, the barriers to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, yeah, as you were as you were mentioning uh, uh, talking there, I picked start off with it. It just struck a chord to me. Um, you know, there is lots of lots of good ideas out there, but it's actually executing it, which is uh, the difficulty. Um, and and we've experienced that in in some of my programs as well in, in North Central London. So. We have an idea. Everyone agrees it's a great idea, but no one's got the resource or the headspace to do it. Uh, for example, the North Central London Collaborative Bank that we set up, it's uh, it's still ongoing, but it, it took 18 months, nearly two years to, to get off the ground really or to, to, to implement it because it, the way it was very complex and it was lots of hard work. And I don't want to blow my own trumpet or blow the trumpet of, of program managers, but it is a critical part. Oh, and, and I've 
I had feedback from the stakeholders I worked with that actually the only reason that we've got this off the ground is because we have a single person like a project manager or a program manager who is driving this forward and is 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 can can really kind of take it by the scruff of the neck and 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 and, and get it to to the point that it's got to um it's not it's not that none of the other stakeholders want to do it it's just that they haven't got that time and the headspace or um you know they're they're, they're flat out with everything else and you know change is hard right and you've got to have that resilience and you've got to have that um drive to keep pushing it and you're going to come across come across hurdles and i guess if you didn't have that single point or person who who's driving it then it may be easy to fall at the first or the second hurdle and then it just it goes by the wayside but i, I think you mentioned at the start um arc of the start of the podcast which was about sharing um you know best practices and evidence of um of, of, of good patient outcomes as well as, as, a, as a result of what it is that you're doing and i think that once you kind of get to that position i think once you can prove and you can evidence that this is the right thing to do we've got you know we've got some resource to try and help drive it through i think that is when you start to get some momentum and you really get people on board then um but yeah totally resonate with what you were saying about um all the ideas but um but, but not but no headspace or resource to do it yeah definitely yeah i was thinking on your point also on the challenges for primary care in terms of capacity capabilities dedicated um program management support. I think now with the, we know, with the transition of um, social specialty or more community services into primary care, you know, community transformation program, primary care is increasingly uh, acquiring more tasks to do, more priorities to address, um, which I think imposes additional challenges in terms of what do you, how do you prioritize your, your digital intervention? How do you go about choosing what is needed and what you know what are your burning priorities now with you, that your scope is increasing and increasing and um i was interested to hear your views Arkid, in in terms of uh you mentioned population health system and whether your that has um helped um you or your colleagues or primary care network in your uh, practice or addressing some of these barriers and also you personally what would you invest on if you had you know money uh, for a digital intervention to implement in primary care what would you um prioritize the, that's a billion dollar question um, i think that's uh it, those points are all very alpha very useful the population health management thing certainly has helped because you're uh, so actually some of the surgeries i worked with were part of the hospital up till recently our, our secondary care trust and we were really seeing benefits in terms of if you uh, on the system um, in terms of reduce sort of if you focus on certain patients, provide them more support, you can um, you can either intervene earlier or just avoid actually avoid any interaction with the system as well. So the population health management work was very good, and and you know it was a project, and I I'm not sure if it's continued beyond the pilot. Um, but is is very is very effective, and actually, I think your question is really good. What would I spend the money? And actually, it brings together what everyone else has basically said, which is actually a support team, which is basically like a project management team. And maybe that is something that we could now start to think about at a primary care network level, uh, because that's the right size where you know you can justify the economies of scale and having a, a small workforce and 
Um, I mean, I'm very lucky. Uh, my practice manager and the operations manager in my surgery are very supportive. We've got a very supportive IT team in our hospital and in the ICB. So one of my colleagues in the ICB has started a project on robot process automation. He's uh, got a good system coming on uh, and it, and we're going to try and mirror that in our surgery. And that has been enabled by having a practice manager who's supportive, a practice manager who um, trusts what we're doing, a tech team in hospital that is supporting with the implementation, and a lot of that higher level things like DPIA and uh, those sorts of things being done by the ICB. So it is a collaborative approach, but if there was that you know i won't say those but i'm aware of other gps in the country who have gone off and bought rpa software themselves at a huge expense to themselves and they are trying to sort that out themselves go through the process that sells that's a huge risk on an individual practice so i think actually if you were want to really support if we wanted to support more practices being innovative in a digital context it's by having that support structure funded locally available so that when a clinician or an admin staff or management staff says actually that's a good idea let's try that we can sort of put that idea out there and let a project manager fly away with it pull in my clinical knowledge when they need it pull in the admin knowledge when they need it pull in the tech support when they need it but um, and I think that would be really helpful because I think the bittersweet irony here is tech is part, it's not the solution, but it's part of the solution to our workforce challenges, but we don't have the headspace to engage with it. So, um, so yeah, actually, Diana, that's a really good question. I think it would be having that support, that project management support. No, I was going to say, I actually, you, you now you gave this, this, your answer is, really uh it resonates uh, it's not about what was the best technology to or what's the most important problem is they having the human uh and capacity and capability to bring about that change and and, and coordinate collaboration i guess this is the initiative we all experience across all parts of the systems to um make things come to life and you know acknowledging that we are so thin on the ground yeah i think that's a really nice way to kind of summarize our discussion today um it's really interesting to hear each of your guys' points of view and how digital is affecting your roles. And um, before we do end the podcast, I'd like to say a massive thank you to all of you for joining today and sharing your thoughts. Um, I think it's been a great conversation. So once again, for our listeners, um, on today's podcast, there's been Fran from Black Country ICB, Arpit from BSW ICB, Lee from North Central London ICB, and Diana from North East London ICS. So if you are hiring for any technical roles or looking for a new role yourself, Feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution or if you or anyone else would like to be featured in a future podcast or have an interesting topic to bring up, please drop me a message too. Uh, I've been Louis. You can find me on LinkedIn or alternatively visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash NHS. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening.